You're listening to the AID Network. Today on Disneyland for Designers. But if you say Baby Yoda and people get mad, we all know that it's Frankenstein's monster, apostrophe yeah. S. <laughs> right, right, But it's right. these people that think yeah, they're, yeah. that's actually the scientist. Yeah. All the things that we love about Disneyland, it's when they took the chances. Mm-hmm. You know, it's every time that they did something outside the lines is where we fell in love with them. Not Roy's words exactly, but it almost seemed like the advice that he got from his brother, his, his dare I say, his best friend, and for sure his business partner was, mm-hmm. look, you've gambled so many times and you've won. You're old. You've proven to everybody you can do everything. Why gamble one more time? But Walt saw a vision. He saw an opportunity. This is a magic moment that is forever gone. Yep. When they did it, it was very punk rock. It was very fly by night. Nobody knew what they were doing. They were making it up as they went along. No one was asking for permission. There was no boards to pass things through. It was loose. Yeah. And I think to be that creative and to do something that drastic and and something that's that monumental, it has to be that loose. A corporation can't go that far. You and I didn't just walk through the gate and go, that was a fun afternoon and leave it. We left a little piece of that inside of our heart. Right. And we let a little piece of that guide us in the decisions we make on the type of content that I create for AID or the type of artwork that you do. Or- mm-hmm. You know, it's one of those weird things. Like, it just sort of happens, right? You can't plan a lot of this stuff. It just happens because you're sort of following your passion for this park and this sort of the, the tone of it all. I have come to realize that what I love most about it is that roadmap that city design, and that truly, it's not just a tagline. Disneyland is 100% a place where dreams do come true. Yeah, oh, for sure, for sure, absolutely. All of that and so much more as we review Mandalorian and the Disneyland Imagineering story today on episode 10 of Disneyland for Designers, starting right now. This is the story of a beautiful place known as the happiest place on earth and all of its history its secrets and its tricks that you may find if your mind believes in design and you allow your heart to believe in magic step inside and become a citizen of disneyland Jared, how are you doing, bud? I'm doing well. Man, the one thing that I didn't anticipate that I would love so much about Disney Plus, Mm -hmm. and, you know, I bought it on opening day. Right. I was a little confused when it was going to go live here on the West Coast. Mm. I was hoping that it would go before I went to bed that night. It didn't. I got up the next morning in the pitch darkness of my house up at 530. Took me 12 minutes to get my Bluetooth headphones paired and my coffee (laughs) brewed. But I watched, for the first time ever, I watched new Star Wars content in the quiet of my home. Yeah. And absolutely adored it. Okay, yeah, for sure. Mandalorian, for me, is the most excited I've ever been about a a Star Wars property since New Hope. So, okay, let's back up a little bit. Were you excited about this from the get-go, from when you heard about this project? 100%. Okay. Because I felt like they had finally chewed off the part of the bone that I wanted the Mm, most. mm. 
I love New Hope because of the adventurous spirit of it. Right. There's You go to a lot of different places. There's a lot of different aliens. There's a lot going on. That kind of calms down a little bit in later movies. Yeah. Or when they do do it, it's like the casino in the last movie. Right. That right. you don't really feel attached or tethered to anything. It's just like, well, this is something that we do. But nothing in there felt like uh, that it was worthy of an action figure. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So when I saw what they were doing Mandalorian about, and also big John Favreau fan, right. I thought this is something for me, and I love the pacing of it. I love mm. the Western vibe of it, the soundtrack. Uh, dare I say the end credits where they either use production artwork or fabricate production artwork right. to make it look like that? That is such a pro move and such a Disney move that five ninety nine a month alone. I would pay to watch The Mandalorian in the privacy of my own home. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this is one of the rare cases, I think, where it's what you wanted and it didn't disappoint. It wasn't like, oh, we got exactly what we wanted and we're sort of like, well, we thought that's what it was going to be. Like, it was so satisfying, that first episode. One might say that that is as hard to do as to fly into a spaceship the size of a small moon <laughs> and shoot two little protons <laughs> in a very, very small space. Ah, while that's you got, not that tough. Why you got this <laughs> going on around you? I shoot womp rats like that back home. So it's really, <laughs> really not that hey, tough. when you said that in the meeting, that really upset me. You really embarrassed me when you called me out like that. <laughs> That's one of the best Family Guy sidebars <laughs> ever. But no, this to me, and interesting because the beating of the drum around Force Awakens and the, the, the movies to follow was so loud that I feel like the Mandalorian, like, let's, let's do ourselves a favor mm-hmm. and not make a big deal about it this time and just kind of throw out something at Star Wars and, and see if it sticks. Yeah, yeah. I think... Um... Like, I think kids can appreciate this. I don't I, care about kids. I know. And if I were a kid, I would love this because right. you, it's not pandering to me. It's not, it's not downplaying it. The, the, the humor that they use in it is enough. Yeah. Let, let, let's hope that that stays exactly where it's it is. It's subtle humor. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like juxtaposition humor. Right. And nods to the, to the trilogies and, and the, the past movies in, in, in some sort of very like natural ways, right. instead of saying like, "Hey, remember this," they're just letting it be. Like, of course, this creature would be here or whatever. So, I think from that perspective, they got that just right. Yeah, I, I feel tonally the characters, mm-hmm. the look, the vibe, the amount of old and new. It is a perfect blend. And I have been predicting for a while that you know they're putting the movies on hold. I predicted for a while that they were going to stop the movies. Mm-hmm. And use the streaming service to sort of regroup, find their hits, and build what they're going to go for next. So, I know the Mandalorian season two had already been green lit before we saw one single episode, right? Because this thing costs a lot of money and takes a lot of it time. It looks like it does too. Absolutely, yeah. And thank you for spending that money where it counts. But I, I believe that Mandalorian, you know, if they could keep the same pace and the same sort of storytelling. That give this four or five seasons, put it on break. This could go to the box office if they want, or it could stay right where it's at because the pacing of these stories, for once, we're not in a big rush. Mm-hmm. You know, for once, we don't have to go from planet to planet to planet. We get to see all the little things in between. And dare I say, it's our first time of getting to feel like we're living inside of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. I agree, and I think it is uh, it is unchained from the Skywalker 
stuff. The Skywalker legend stuff. That's so I huge. think this is what works for Rogue One too. So Rogue One is still very much tied to a new hope. Not so much Skywalker stuff, but right. just a new hope. And I think that's why that one I think is probably the best of the, do you the like, new generation. Do you like uh, Rogue One? Yeah, I think of the new films, that one works the best. I think for so. Me. It's it's the one that felt the most original. Yeah. Which is odd because it's the one that's really a, a pigeonhole right. in the timeline. Like right. they're really in a small little area there, but it felt the most like a breath of fresh air. So I would even say in that one, which I, I, you know, my opinion was that when it came too close to what we knew, that was when it was least effective. It was that oh, they're talking about was, the ending scene. Yeah, so like where they so, just go up and just touch butts. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit of Vader, great. A little too much Vader, well, you know, it's a cool scene and stuff, but it's a little pandering, I think. Mm. So I think that's where this one is great. Like, we we, we get it. We There's enough here to see that we're in the Star Wars universe. Right. Um, and some fun stuff that's in there. Um, but without going heavy-handed or relying on that too much to make this thing successful. This is doing its own thing, which is great. I will also say that I found that the Mandalorian felt very Disney. Hmm. The way that the characters are rolled out and the creatures and sort of the the way the storytelling is, like, I can see this being ripped apart item by item and repackaged in different ways. Yeah. There are already characters and animals in there that I feel that they have legs to stand on their own. And I would love to challenge people, like, think of all the new Star Wars movies that we've seen. Name more than two characters that really mm-hmm. stand out other than the core group. Like, right, right. But when you and I were kids, every single character in the cantina, mm-hmm. almost every single one got turned into an action yeah, figure. That's right. Yeah. And everything had sort of a purpose and, and you felt like each piece of the galaxy was, was precious, but outside of, you know, um, the core characters, heroes and villains, when we go to these different lands and we meet different people, like, did anybody want an action figure of those weird sort of Japanese guys that were on the Millennium Falcon (laughs) with the the mask on? Right. Do you want any action figure from anybody that you saw at the casino in the last film? Exactly. I mean, it's just disposable people. Like, who's in love with the woman that has the multiple sets of eyes that's, you know, like... (laughs) Sexy job of the hut, right? You know, like right, right. these are all just throwaways mm-hmm. to the point where I haven't even gone out of my way to learn their names, right? Right. But I feel like in the Mandalorian, you're already seeing the charm of one character that I think has taken the internet by by storm, and that is. Can I say it? I think so. I think they're going full full speed with this, right? They're not holding it back anymore. Baby Yoda. That's right. Right. So now everyone's screaming. It is not Yoda. Of we course. know that. Of course. But everyone's screaming that. So it's just a Yoda creature, which there is no, I guess... A Yoda youngling. Right. There's no name for the species. That we're aware of. Yeah. So uh, that's why everyone's calling it Baby Yoda. But yes, that seems to be... But if you say Baby thing. Yoda and people get mad, we all know that it's Frankenstein's monster, yeah. apostrophe S. <laughs> right, right, But it's right. these people that think yeah, they're... Yeah. Oh, that's actually the scientist. That's such a Star Wars, yeah, comic book guy. Approach. But let's throw that out the window because sure. what we have um, is just so exciting, and it, the the texture of it, the design of it, mm-hmm. like it really feels authentic. And it has a pace because it is on TV. The pace is a little bit more generous, mm-hmm. takes a little bit more time. Although I've never fixed a spaceship that fast, but it yeah. it it has a way of if you want to spend eight minutes fighting Jawas, 
you got eight minutes. Right. Like right. such a lovable part of the Star Wars universe. Mm-hmm. Everybody loved losing that little brown robe. Yep. <laughs> like what was that material that they made those out of? <laughs> a little spongy. Like yeah. it just disintegrated if you kept it. But yeah. you can take the time and to do that. Yeah. You know, yeah. you can have a sort of a whole Jawa story. And, you know, the first episode, always be wary of the pilot of a TV series because mm-hmm. the pilot, they really put a lot of money, right. a lot of time, a lot of finesse, and they set up the story. So when I saw the second episode was around 30 minutes, mm-hmm. I was a little bit skeptical, but it was fun because there was three nice action adventures. Yeah. Kind of in there, you know, almost like, you know, your, your, your three acts to a good play. And at the end of the 30 minutes, I was completely satisfied. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they've done a great job setting up the tone, which is really what we wanted for these first few episodes. It's like getting, you know, it's not it's not forcing a story too hard down our throats yet. It's sort of letting it, it obviously these episodes are done, right? The story is done. We, you know, we know it's going into season two already. Um, so I'm just bracing myself that there was no weird course correction after these first few episodes that were just fantastic. I'm hoping it maintains throughout. I think if you're going to have a guy like John Favreau sign his name on it. Right. There's a certain amount of credibility. Yes. And respect that he gets. Trust. Yeah. Trust. Where he's not going to get bullied like some of these other cats mm-hmm. have. Because mm-hmm. I was kind of amazed that the directors that they've used on things, they were kind of going for this approach of hiring young gun directors that right. had some moderate to mid-level success but right. i mean a star wars movie is a whole other thing yeah i mean there's there's very few things that are at that level of ip or pop culture or fan insanity and favaro's a guy who's played in that sandbox and his work that he did on iron man trust me on this it really helped figure out where the the template for the marvel universe was going mm-hmm. and you know at the um the end of the uh, avengers yeah endgame there's, One of my favorite films. Ah, I know you love it. Yeah. But there's a weird thing. You know, there's a funeral at the end of it, and John Favreau's character is, is in the film. Mm-hmm. And it was very meta in that he's like crying that his friend died. But in a way, he's also probably crying as a person that for 10 years and 20 films, I've been a part of this thing. Right. That, that me and Kevin <laughs> built. Did I say his last name? I'm not sure. That's a little offensive. I, <laughs> uh, I was going to ask you about the specific. Hold movie. on. Let me re-say that. <laughs> Feige? Let's go Feige. That he and Kevin. Yeah. That John Favreau and others have been working on. <laughs> my, my Kentucky pronunciation of Kevin's last name keeps coming out wrong, my ladies and goodness. gentlemen. And I don't mean it. It's just, no. I'm a hillbilly, and that's how my pronunciation That's right. Is. It's a very different experience if he's making direct eye contact with you <laughs> when he's saying that. But I'm sorry. No offense. Uh, I was going to ask you about that, because I think the Marvel has become sort of, I think, for everybody, the new recipe for how you handle these huge franchises and things like that. Do you see any of that in what we're seeing with the Mandalorian specifically? 100% I do because uh, I think that this is Star Wars finding their footing. One of the worst things you could ever try to do as a creative or as a designer, and where Disneyland has been successful, is that it's never tried to um, go for, how do I say this? Because you could argue with me if I don't get it out right. Mm. The Force Awakens is not a great movie right? because they forced a success. 
they basically covered themselves. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like a one-to-one recreation of New Hope because that's what felt safe. But when you look about all the things that we love about Disneyland and and that resort in particular, it's when they took the chances. Mm -hmm. You know, it's every time that they did something outside the lines is where we fell in love with them. And the core part of today's episode is we're going to talk all about Imagineering, the the, wonderful documentary series that's a part of Disney+. Plus. But every time those people in that golden age when there was the most amount of technology Mm -hmm. with the least amount of rules, that's when Disneyland was built. And this golden age of, you know, there's machinery, there's expendable income, there's a a, a bit of technology, but there's also no rules. Mm -hmm. And you can build Disneyland in 364 days. Yeah, I don't understand. I'm going to say that one more time. You can build Disneyland in 364 days for $18 million of 1954 money. But Ricky, it opened in 55. You got to get the money before you <laughs> opened it. When I look at The Mandalorian, yeah. it's finding its pace. Mm-hmm. It feels like a Star Wars story, but it feels new. It's not forced. Over eight episodes, you have the room to let it breathe. Mm -hmm. And it feels... The other movies, when I think about them, they feel a lot like Captain America Winter Soldier. Captain America the First Avenger, sorry. The the very first... Captain America. Captain America, first Marvel movie. They were really... It wasn't there. And then when they did the first Iron Man, it felt more natural. Second one, better. Third one, really great. And they had established like a core character and they're able to build off of that. Mm -hmm. This feels like that moment. Yeah. And I'm very excited and I hope that the Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, series with Ewan McGregor is going to go in a similar course. I'm more concerned about that one. I I, I feel like that one's going to have a lot of weight on it. It, It's directly tied with the original trilogy. It's directly tied with the the prequels. And and they've really sort of danced around the prequels, right? Like, we didn't see a lot of it in The Force Awakens. I don't know that you could say we saw any of it. Was there much acknowledgement of it in, in these new films? I don't... There's also not that much of it at Batu. Yeah. You know, right. but when right. they showed the timeline of Galaxy's Edge, mm-hmm. they put Batu at the very end of the timeline of the Skywalker saga. Saga. Yeah. Which is interesting, and it made sense to me because it's like, okay, if Batu is at the very end of all the movies. Right. From a marketing perspective, from a merchandising perspective, from a storyteller's perspective, anything that's in the Star Wars canon can be introduced right. into Batu, and it's historic. It's a relic of these people's right. timeline. It exists. Yeah. It, when people are like, why did they make it New Hope? Then you have to ignore yeah. everything that comes after. Right, right. So I think that it was really playing it safe because it almost feels like this movie that we're going to get. Uh, what is that little mini hipster? Mickey? What is that on your computer? <laughs> oh That's a visual thing. Yes, someone made that for me. A little, a tiny it's version. It's like a tiny version of your Isn't Mickey Isn't that adorable? Ears. Wow. They even put a Disney tag in it. <laughs> Bootleg. Total. This is, I thought it was a Christmas ornament for It a looks moment. like it. That, that's what they were talking about. Yeah, it, it looks it's like the scale of the Christmas ornaments because mm-hmm. they sell the little Mickey ear Christmas ornaments at the Christmas shop. And, uh, wow, a fan did this? Yes, a fan made a little tiny replica of my hipster Mickey ears and, and gave it to me at the signing, which is just fantastic. I mean, the little fantastic. beanie. Uh, yes, exactly. Look at that beanie, though. It's like, it's hilarious, right? It's yeah, like, wow. Pretty accurate. Wow. Little glasses. Where do you find glasses like that? <laughs> What an adventure. Mm. And it caught my attention. So, anyways, 
as much as I love Mandalorian and mm -hmm. I'm riding high on it and right. you know, I have a very, very busy Friday and I'm going to get up super early, watch it before anybody in the house awakes because I can't go out into the world. Right. Accidentally having some. So yeah. uh, one last thing that I really loved about the Mandalorian is that when it dropped on that Wednesday, mm -hmm. a lot of people were all talking about the same TV show. Yeah. And somebody who makes content for a living. Right. It's scary to think that you can't get people back on the same page. Yeah. Like appointment entertainment is gone. Mm -hmm. And so that part of it is a tremendous win in 2019 to get everybody talking about one show, watching it when it drops. Very smart not to put all eight episodes That's out at right. once. To keep doing that little drip, you'll you'll enjoy it more. People are going back and watching the episodes. With all that being said, it is my second favorite thing on Disney Plus because my first favorite thing is the documentary on Imagineering. Yes. Hey, friends. It's that time of year again. It's California Christmas time. Oh, you don't know what California Christmas is? Well, let me explain. It's an organic coffee infused with an organic peppermint tea, and then we threw in some organic raw cacao nibs, giving you the power of Thunder King cold brew paired with that sweet taste of Christmas. It's like drinking a Christmas tree, and who doesn't want to drink a Christmas tree? You can order online at thunderkingcoffee.com, and don't forget to use the coupon code AID. COT to save on your purchase. Available in 6, 8, 10, and 12 16 ounce cans at a time. Delivered to your front door. The story of Thunder King's California Christmas goes back three Christmases now. When I said to my good friend Thunder King, I said, Thunder King, somebody needs to make a delicious cold brew that tastes like Christmas time. And he replied to me, What would that taste like? And I said, Peppermint, like a candy cane like drinking a Christmas tree. And Thunder Dean went down into the laboratories and he pulled in our good friends over at Violent Gentlemen Hockey Club. And the three of us came together with this amazing thing that is truly the meaning of Christmas. It's a California Christmas. ThunderKingCoffee.com. Don't forget to use the coupon code AIDCOT on checkout. It's delicious. Hey friends, this Thanksgiving score 25% off custom full color stickers. Create your stickers with unique die cuts, full color liner prints, or ultra durable stocks. Whatever you choose, it's all 25% off this Thursday to Monday when you go to jackprints.com. Use the coupon code BLK Friday. And when they say any special request, tell them AIDCOT to save even more. That's this Thursday through Monday, 25% off your custom sticker creation at jackprints.com. And don't forget, you can do five designs in one order. Split your sticker order up with different artwork as long as they're all the same size, shape, and stock. And jackprints.com will allow you to print a lot or a little. Standard quantities from 100 to 5,000. Need a different amount? Just ask. In any shape or any size, circles, squares, ovals, and custom die cuts, standard sizing from 2 inches to 7 inches. And my favorite part, free liner prints. Take pride in your backside. Double your promotional power and turn your stickers into flyers or coupons. That's this Thursday to Monday, jackprints.com, 25% off your custom sticker order. Make sure in the notes, tell them A-I-D-C-O-T to save even more. Jackprince.com slash circle of trust. Let's start with this. This has been in the works forever. 
This is influenced by the YouTube generation. I believe on good, on good um, authority that they have seen people in the creator space tell the Disney story better than they ever have. Mm-hmm. Disney's very good at telling you two dogs that fall in love and share some pasta. <laughs> and one of those dogs' names is Stitch, and the other dog's name is Lilo. That's a great film. It is. But, you know, they've done a good job of saying, hey, one day, Coco, you'll become a boy. And he plays his acoustic <laughs> guitar, and a little skeleton boy becomes a real boy. They've done these things, yes, right? Yes, right. Dumble didn't know that he had to go on Pride Rock and rule the nation, but That's he did right. it. He did. He did. For an elephant, amazing. Hey, long live the king. Yes. But... They don't do a good job of telling their own story. Mm. I'm a super Disneyland fan. Sure. Everybody who genuinely knows me, generally knows me. I kind of mix genuine and generally. <laughs> right. Anybody who, words. Anybody who vaguely knows me knows yeah. I love Disneyland. Yeah. I can't stomach the Christmas parade that they show on Christmas morning. <laughs> the televised. It's, yeah. It's rough. Yeah. yeah and yeah. anytime they do a special, they always go... A little too like my suggestion to Disney is this: tell us about the park. Mm. We'll figure out how to buy tickets. Yeah, you don't need to show us all the fun that a family will have at the park. It's Disneyland, Disney World, Disney Paris, Disney Sea. We know we're going to have a great time. We right. know it's epic. Right. And when you sell it too hard, you become that sleazy car salesman that everybody right. wants to sli- right. slide yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. That's why your dad went and looked at cars at 9 o'clock at night after the staff had left. <laughs> he wanted to find something uninterrupted he could fall in sure. love with, come back the next day and buy it. So what's imag- uh, amazing about the Disney Imagineering so it's just telling us the legacy. Mm-hmm. It's just telling us why it's special. And there's no commercial breaks. There's no going to a guy that talks like this and says, don't forget, you can book a Disneyland right. vacation with your family. <laughs> right. There's none right. of that. Right. right. And the story in episode one that goes from the, the idea of Disneyland mm-hmm. up into, spoiler alert, the death of Walt Disney. Right. Hope I didn't ruin anybody's world. Yep. But you know that Walt's no longer with us. That story right there is one of the greatest American stories ever told. Yes, for sure. If your corporation has that in your back pocket and someone who has become a folk hero, like it's it's hard to think in 2020, I'm going to round up. Okay. Walt Disney was a real guy. Yes. Yeah. Right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, now he's sort of, he's a statue. He's a mascot. Well, don't forget Walt said it'd never be done. Uh, yeah. don't, don't, don't forget that uh, that it was all started by a mouse. Mm. But, I mean, he was a real guy. He was yeah. a boss. He was yeah, a father. Yeah. He was a grandfather. Yeah. Um, he was a husband. He was an annoyance to his brother. Mm-hmm. I mean, poor Roy Disney. Nobody ever had a worse job in their yeah. life. <laughs> My brother's insane. He comes with crazy ideas, and then I go fight with the bank to get money it's to It's going to be it. like the worst, best job ever, though, right? Like, to be associated with this company, like, how does he not, I don't know, was it not as magical for him, like, this part of it? Or is he just so tied up in the financials that he's just, he like, just had stressed most, beyond belief? He just had the most unbearable part of the corporation <laughs> to try to go get more money. Yeah, yeah. And keep Walt, people employed, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And Walt just kept digging and digging and digging and make it deeper and deeper. But when you look at the the marvel of Disneyland, mm-hmm. as I said earlier in today's episode, $18 million sounds like a lot of money when you don't have $1 million. Yeah. But I couldn't even imagine what Disneyland is worth today in, in 2019. Oh, yeah. Weird. And when you think about everybody told him not to do it. Mm-hmm. People told him it was crazy. He had to go home and tell his wife like, yo, 
say goodbye to the Palm Springs house. Yeah. Like Walt was actually liquidating assets mm-hmm. to put more and more money into this thing that a lot of people told him was a pipe dream. Right. And, you know, not Roy's words exactly, but it almost seemed like the advice that he got from his brother, his, his dare I say, his best friend, and for sure his business partner was, mm-hmm. look, you've gambled so many times and you've won. You're old. You've proven to everybody you can do everything. Why gamble one more time? But Walt saw a vision. He saw an opportunity. And that is a true visionary. When you can look at the market mm-hmm. and not copy what somebody else is doing, but say there's a hole in the market and I can create something that's new and I can take people there with me. That type of vision is so few and far between, so seldom. Mm. And the one thing I really want to kind of look at today is not just the celebration of the ideas that founded and poured the concrete that is Disneyland, but this was a once in a century or yeah. millennial or yeah. lifetime or however you want. Like this is a magic moment that is forever gone. Yep. And when they did it, it was very punk rock. <laughs> it was very fly by night. Nobody knew what they were doing. They were making it up as they went along. No one was asking for permission. There was no boards to pass things through. It was loose. Yeah. And I think to be that creative and to do something that drastic and and something that's that monumental, it has to be that loose. A corporation can't go that far. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, when you look at the difference between Apple with Steve Jobs and now Tim Apple. That's exactly right. It's a whole different thing. Yeah. Because Steve Jobs, Walt Disney, Jim Henson. Mm Mm-hmm. These people are so big that they can go into a room and say, it's red. And everybody goes, well, the big man said it's red and it's red. But once that leadership is gone and middle management has to find the right color of red. Committee, yeah. And then they take it up the board and everybody's kind of jockeying for a position and there's really nobody who's, who's in charge. That's why, you know, he's not the same, but... God bless Bob Iger for having a vision mm-hmm. and really kind of getting the Disney corporation in a good spot. Right. And it, I don't know the guy, I've never met him, but it does seem like he really trusts the creatives underneath him. Yeah. You know, and that he lets people do their things, which was a big part of what Walt did. So let's just start right here. Let's just start with the actual, I'd love to have a conversation just about the land, the soil itself. Mm. You know, the idea of the first thing that they did was build the berm. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right. Think about right. for a second, ladies and gentlemen, think for a second about the genius of saying, because a lot of people would say, let's put a fence around it so mm-hmm. people can see in. And, and want see, to come in. And want to come right, in. Right, right, right. But the idea of building the berm and putting the mound of dirt around the entire uh, project and encapsulating it inside your imagination yeah, to where you can't see what's inside there, that alone is a mind blowing way to reinvent the wheel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that's, I think that's probably the first step into sort of how this isn't really an amusement park. I know the, the story is that it sort of recreated the amusement park or, or the carnival or something like right. that. But this is really a, a brand new concept that sort of flipped that idea on, you know, a carnival is rides or whatever in games and things like that. But um, this is, this is nothing to be compared to. So like from that very concept, we're already in a new territory. Exactly. And, and you know, they, in the documentary, they, they talk about the folks who were in charge of the landscaping mm-hmm. and they said their biggest uh, challenge or, or their biggest goal was to not be noticed. Mm-hmm. 
And I thought that that was a really clever way of saying, hey, we're going to grade this land and we're going to put hills in and mounds and valleys, you know, because it takes a special type of person to, to say, I don't want it flat. Mm-hmm. And just little bitty, small subtleties like the Main Street grades up. Hmm to the the castle you know right. which makes it feel a little bit more grandiose and to actually dig out the castle to put the moat in there to to build all that land around there the way it was mm-hmm. i mean that's so much more than just putting an attraction right in the ground to actually work with the raw earth and to build something that looks like a set yeah yeah. These were movie people, not right. Architects. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's the genius of like the idea of the hub, because this thing could have just been Fantasyland. That could have been it, right? The whole totally. park could have just been 100%. Fantasyland. That would have made sense, and and people probably would have been pretty happy with a big Fantasyland. But to to break it up into the way that they did, and and, and the, there's this TV show that's advertising it in this way to set up why all these other lands would exist. I mean. I, I just can't even wrap my head. Like people didn't even know what was happening to them at the time. We're also aware and sort of cynical about marketing and things like that. Now, if we were to see a, a TV show nowadays that came on saying we're advertising for a new six flags coming up, right? No one would watch that. No, no. one would care. But to just be like, okay, we're getting into, we are going to create this thing to get into the American psyche. They will have this in their head already when they come to visit this park. They know these lands already. And it goes to show the difference of the times because in 1954, when Disneyland, the TV series would have been airing, right. Walt needed more money. They brokered a deal with ABC, who was in bottom of the barrel last place. Right. We'll give you content in exchange for money. We'll also give you the rights to cover the park when it opens. Mm-hmm. And I forgot the number of how many cameras they put in there, but I remember reading elsewhere in my research of Disneyland that they went around to all the local different affiliates, Mm -hmm. borrowed cameras, borrowed cable. And that was one of the very first big like live broadcast things where something was covered that way. And I mean, they literally had cameramen uh, in cages up by, you know, construction equipment, forklifts and cherry pickers and stuff like this, this type of thing didn't exist until they did it there. It's so clunky too. Like it's so great to watch because it's just, you can tell it's live. There's nothing polished about it. No, it's a mess, but art link letters hitting on chicks right before he goes (laughs) live. There's a lot of like false starts. You you can even see Walt getting a little kind of like, what, what's happening? And that kind of stuff. It's just, it's fantastic to watch. I love at the end when they don't know where to put their arms on each other. When they're walking together. It's like puts his arm on them. Let's go to fantasy. And then like the cable, they're attached to the cable and it's like the worst exit ever. But it's, so perfect in its imperfection Mm -hmm. and the idea of we're going to build models Mm -hmm. we're going to build concept art we're going to make shorts and we're going to mentally take you there we're going to take you there right and i don't know about you but the first time i ever saw disneyland was a viewmaster yeah i remember looking at the viewmaster and just being what is this place (laughs) and just getting to see those little captured cells it made me wonder well if i walk through this little road that i'm seeing this path with all these crazy plants all around it what's around the bend see so i went to disneyland fairly young like i went before i knew i went uh and then a few times in there not every year not close to that um so i had you know it's kind of in the background it wasn't like a crazy thing like it is now but it was always sort of there so for someone like you who was so far away but you're seeing this on a viewmaster like 
what was your perception of that? And was it sort of like a, am I going to go there one day or not? Or like, what did you think? It was kind of the same thing of when you see a photo of the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. You realize the scale of it and that it's grandiose and it's this thing that people love. But the photo is always kind of a little tinted, mm-hmm. a little bit different. And right. it kind of feels more like, well, I've also seen the Millennium Falcon. It <laughs> doesn't necessarily mean that it's real or I could go to right, it. Right, right. And so I think that for me growing up in Kentucky, Disneyland was just an abstract, almost, it felt like a fair. Yeah. Disney World was the promise. Mm. You know, I don't know if any of the kids I grew up with had ever actually been to Disneyland. Disney World was the promise. And I remember there would be kids that would come back to the neighborhood and like, I went to Disney World. Yeah. And you would just sit back and be like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Walk me through it. Like, right. where did you go? What did you do? What was it like? Um, and and I would went, like you, I would went very young in life with my mom, mm-hmm. my babysitter, and her uh, son. And very abstract memories. I was too young to enjoy it. Okay. I just remember invisible dog leashes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah. remember being terrified at the Haunted Mansion. Right. And I remember I had to ride shotgun on, I guess, Autopia uh, or whatever. Do they have a different race car thing in Florida? Uh, no, I think it's still, I think it's Autopia there still too. And yeah. I remember being shotgun and just being terrified that I thought Tony was driving the car way too, too outrageous, crazy. which yeah. was my um, babysitter's son. And also he was older than me and he had Star Wars action figures. There you go. Very cool. And I remember sneaking into his room and getting the Greedo one out and spent this is the coolest thing I've ever had. <laughs> so, so that's interesting because then, so Disney World was the reality for you, but Disneyland was this other sort of mythical place or did you think of it as less than i think we were trained on the east coast that it was less than yeah because how could it be the same when there's acres and acres and acres and then epcot opened up and then they were like oh my god now disney world has the best food court that was ever designed (laughs) next to it and you can go to this golf ball and then go to any restaurant you want to go to around the world it's like the world's greatest mall uh joking there epcot fans calm down everybody yeah tell figment i'm just (laughs) <laughs> pulling his tail. But I think when you look at the idea of Disneyland and Main Street USA and taking four buildings the size of a small, you know, back then that would have been a department store size. Right. But I mean, you know, any Walmart is bigger than one of those four buildings on right. Main Street. Right, sure, sure. But the idea of taking what would have been a big Woolsworth or, a, you know, a yep. small Kmart right. <laughs> and cutting it up. Into all those different little shops. Right. And actually at the time, having individual families be the proprietors of those shops, like just such an interesting concept of we're building a small town. Mm -hmm. And I think where the town idea kind of dissolved in Disneyland, Walt was dead set to do it again in Epcot, but really make a city. Yes. I think ultimately he, he really wanted to make a city. Right. And at a different time, a different body of health, the man might have went into politics. Sure. For sure. Because he had the mind for leadership and doing stuff like that. But, you know, the, when you think about the Jungle Cruise, mm-hmm. one of their first big mistakes, putting the attraction inside the berm, that would have mm. to be corrected because, you know, you run out of space. Right. But the idea of taking people on this Jungle Cruise. Yeah. Right? Like, you're in a boat. You're seeing all these animals. Like Not everybody got to go to zoos all the time. Not every right, zoo had every right. set of animals. Like in the context of 1955, that is an outrageous thing for people to go on. And I always try to imagine, you know, I'm jaded. 
I go on it now. The skipper jokes wear me down. Right. The mechanics are outdated and yeah. antiquated. Yeah, like yeah. it's a little bit rough. Charming, but yeah. Charming, but rough. But uh, you know, still how lush it is, mm-hmm. and how for a minute you feel like you've left where you're at. Yeah. There's just a lot that's there that when I'm riding that ride, I try to imagine myself in that boat in 1955 and it would absolutely blow your mind. Yeah. Like that would be the thing you go home and be like, yeah, but cruise (laughs) for you when you went as a kid. Yeah. Was there something that you remember taking back with you? Not, not a piece of merchandise, right? Right. but like a part of the park that felt precious or a memory that you had where you just knew that that little town in Anaheim was different than any place you'd ever been before. Uh, I think the the earliest memory I have is actually Small World, which which makes sense. I think most people that's probably your earliest memory is that ride, and and that uh, that and uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Thinking like, how did they make this look like we're outside and it's nighttime? And that was just amazing to me. All those effects worked on me back then. So I think I you know everything that all the intentions were there for me as you know when you're that right age everything's working everything you know you're not cynical yet it, everything's exciting haunted mansion just like you was too scary and i panicked about that and and things like that um but yeah i think that's probably my earliest memory is is small world and and uh, this sounds so stupid now but like thinking like i remember telling my mom and this is something it's like a story that we keep telling uh, that I said that I wanted to be one of those kids in Small World, mm. as if it were a job. Like right. I wanted to be the kid that was holding the balloon and was going up and down, or something like that. And I don't know why I said that. You know but... how exhausting that would be after your first eight-hour shift. <laughs> well, you got a nickel or something. Like that. But uh, so yeah, so that was impactful, and I think that's why it's still one of my favorite attractions. But um, yeah, I, I think that's the best thing about Disneyland is that you you grow up, you grow into it, and like everything kind of stays with you no matter what. One of the things that really um, resonated with me was the fact that they talk a lot in the documentary, but it's a place where adults can go mm-hmm. and still find that innocence or that purity. And also a place where an adult can go and enjoy themselves and not feel judged. Right, right. And I'm a pretty loose guy. Yeah. <laughs> but there is a certain way I feel in Disneyland. And you've seen me like just, I start just dancing down Main Street. Yes. Like there's like a little buzz that's mm-hmm. not me trying to perform on the podcast or performing on stage right, like right. it's literally you and me and i'm like popping around and and, and there's also a certain amount of politeness that it brings out in uh, yeah yes that you've noticed yes and I, I just there's something about it makes me want to behave a certain way because <laughs> it's built a certain way and i think for me what i've learned through watching disney's version of a documentary mm-hmm. uh, about their their masterpiece is that I love everything about Disneyland that makes it feel like a real city. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whether it's the Mark Twain, and I grew up on the banks of the Ohio, so I'm no stranger of hearing steamboats. Right. The Bell Louisville, the Delta Queen going down the Ohio River, hearing the steam organ from my front yard when we were kids. Like mm. that was a regular sound in my life. Uh, certain days, the Mark Twain can go by and I can almost just feel a lump in the back of my throat. Cause it so reminds me of being a kid growing up. Like literally you cross the road that I was on and you could be on the banks of the Ohio river. That's yeah, that's crazy. But let's use context in 1955, every little boy and every little girl hadn't been on a plane mm-hmm. and seen a riverboat. Right. 
you know, like Disneyland materialized a lot of things that were just sort of a foreign ideology because not everybody air traveled. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you were growing up in Anaheim, you probably went and saw family in Oregon and maybe Arizona. And yeah. every once in a while you'd go see like your grandma who lived someplace far, far away. Right. But the world wasn't as small. Mm-hmm. So when they built New Orleans Square, that was the first time people got to see that. Yeah. Which is magical, right? Oh, for sure. And what's interesting now is like that has that has created its own nostalgia, right? You are nostalgic for this artificial version of the real thing right? because you never went. And, and it sort of satisfies that to a certain degree. I think like Epcot does that to a certain degree too. Like, oh, I've never been to France, but I've been to Epcot. <laughs> so it's funny to see like how that, that version of a very specific time in American history, though it's sort of a, sort of a legend like, you know what I mean? Like a, yeah. like a false sense of what the American history was. But now we are nostalgic for that vision of it and, and not a reality. You have a reality, which is a different take, I think, than most people do, though. But the idea of the train, yeah, the boat, adding the monorail, the subs, the cars, the horse and carriage, mm-hmm. the double-decker bus, meep, meep, like all of that stuff that just layers up. This past week, I did something that was really wonderful. Um, for my YouTube channel, I've been working loosely for months. Mm-hmm. I want to make a, this little documentary uh, about Disneyland. I've already done two of them. One that shows the past, present, and future of animatronics. Right. Another one that shows what would Disneyland be without no rocks. Mm-hmm. You know, the way that the they right, use yeah. the rock wall to, to build in the, the vision of the park. I think it's genius. But it's something they do that they don't need to do is um and the, i want to call the documentary every day at sunset hmm. every day at sunset they retire the american flag yes the flag retreat and they have uh an old marine his name's ernie super nice guy who runs it every day an employee a disneyland an empl- cast member disneyland cast yes. member uh, who's a former marine and he walks around if you're sitting in the the, the circle there that, yeah that not the hub hub but that little hub, town square town square in the circle there around the flagpole he'll walk up to you and say you know, he'll shake your hand and say, are you a veteran or did anybody in your family serve? Yeah. And if you tell him that you're a vet or, you know, my grandfather served and right. his name was blah, blah, blah. He'll repeat it back to you and say that he's going to say that person's name when they pull the flag down and they're folding it up. Huh. And what I've discovered is there's a lot of vets that go there on Saturdays. And they go there for the flag ceremony where they bring down the flag. Right. The Dapper Dans sing a couple of songs. The Disneyland band performs a couple of songs with the Dapper Dans. There's an audio track. There's an audio track. They play Martin Luther King drop. They do a John F. Kennedy drop. Right. Um, they do a couple of other drops. And each one of those indicates a certain branch of the U.S. military. Mm-hmm. And if you're a member of the Air Force, when they do Armstrong, you take a step forward. Hmm. Um because they're celebrating the, the Air Force and they do that for the Marines and the Army and the Navy and the, the Coast Guard. But the thing about it is, is this little ceremony that they do, veterans come out, they they hang out, yeah, they talk to each other, they've now become friends. And when it's over with, all the men and women that are in that circle, and gender-wise, it's normally 50-50, which is really cool. Oh, wow. Very cool. Surprising. When it's done, they all shake hands and say thank you to each other. Yeah. And it's just this amazing thing that they do that they don't need to do. Right. And so Ernie told me, he goes, hey, I've seen you here a couple of times. You got to come to our Veterans Day. Hmm. So I went. And uh, Jared, it's hard to film 
when you're crying. Yeah. <laughs> because what they do that is so magical, and you and I have in common, we've both been to the candlelight um, processional. Mm-hmm. You know when you're sitting there staring at the Main Street train station? Right. You don't realize that behind you, Main Street is flooded with choir singers right. holding the candles right. that, that floods in. Well, when you're at the um, Veterans Day, you don't know that the band's coming up the street with a bunch of vets behind them. Ah. And they flank you to the left and to the right. And it's all of the Disney cast members ah. that are either active or past military service. service. Yeah. And when you see the castle, or I'm sorry, the train station, and you see all these different cast members flood in and fill up the stairs right. in their Batu outfits, yeah, in their you know Jungle Cruise skipper outfits. Oh, okay. You so know, they're in costume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're in costume or they're wearing you know their nice attire because they right. have a, a more corporate job. It's amazing to see those people celebrated for that. So mm-hmm. I went back on his recommendation and... I went over to City Hall that night and I gave the cast member who was in charge of it all, I gave him a compliment. And I said, you guys don't have to do this, but you do it. Right. And it's what makes Disneyland feel so real. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think if the documentary about Imagineering taught me anything, it's those things that I put above all else. Mm -hmm. You know, I put the, the park bench that sort of nostalgia, the Christmas, the Halloween, all the things that make Disneyland feel real. And I, Club 33 is a bit of a mystical thing. Yeah. You and I have been fortunate enough to go there probably more than most people right. um, could ever dream of. Yeah, for Including sure. us. For sure. Yeah, for sure. And it's not the exclusive nature of it that I find it to be so fascinating. And it's not sort of, oh, we're up above these people and they don't know what's going on up above them. It's none of the country club atmosphere of it to me. Mm-hmm. What we've been blessed to learn at Club 33 is that a lot of those members are friends with each other Mm -hmm. and they know each other. Yeah. And this is a place where they go and they hang out Mm -hmm. and there's a real community that exists there. For sure. And the bartender and the wait service know the members. Mm -hmm. And I think in Disneyland where you can honestly think everyone around you is from a different place on planet earth and maybe they're a local or maybe it's their one vacation. Right. There's something about being up there in the Club Nouveau and seeing that there's a community. Mm-hmm. And I always think if Walt could be excited about anything, he could be excited that there's still locals, still a community aspect, and still people that treat his little city like a real city. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I You know, there's two ways to look at that, right? Yes, it, it, I think it does represent a certain amount of money. I, I think you can't escape that aspect. Of well, you gotta have you got to put a price tag that creates that exclusiveness on it. But for someone to put down that much money to, to be a part of that and the people that we have been fortunate enough to sort of interact with in that case, love it. Yeah. They love it. This yeah. is not some kind of status thing or something. They love this park. They are here often. They're visiting constantly and, and they're just as excited about every little thing about Disneyland as anyone else is. So I think we've been lucky in the experience that we've had and the people that we've met right. to sort of get that, that sense, right? Like that they're sort of on the same page with us, even though we are just guests. <laughs> but I think that we bring something important to the stew that is, you know, these are people that are successful in business that have an amount of money to spend on Disneyland where they can do this type of thing. And none of them are jaded on it. And I kind of feel like club 33 is the same as, um, if you buy a yacht 
you want to have people on the boat with you. Right. Because how miserable would it be to be on a $250,000 yacht out in the ocean by yourself with no one to enjoy? Like, well, if I lower the jet ski down, then who drives the boat? Right. Like, you, you got to have people to play with your toys or they're not fun. But I think what you and I bring to the table is that, you know, we have this sort of like organic attachment to Disneyland. Mm. We decided to take our careers and mm. to take our art talents yeah. and to, to tell that story. Like we, you and I didn't just walk through the gate and go, that was a fun afternoon and leave it. We left a little piece of that inside of our heart. Right. And we let a little piece of that guide us in the decisions we make on the type of content that I create for AID or the type of artwork that you do. Or mm-hmm. My dream was just to say that I worked for the park. Right. And when I got hired, I picked all the things that I loved, <laughs> put them in one project <laughs> so nobody could ever take away from me that when I stare at that train station, right. I was hired by Disneyland to draw that train station. That's exactly right. You yeah. can't take that away yeah. from me. No. They try right. all the time. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's one of those weird things. Like it just sort of happens, right? You can't plan a lot of this stuff. It just happens because you're sort of following your passion for this park and this sort of the, the tone of it all. And, and so, yeah, I don't know. It's always sort of surreal for me when we're in that club, when we're talking with these people about these things, it's just, uh, I don't know, like it's so Disney, right? It's like, mm. and in a way that you couldn't have planned on in, in any sort of way. So, but also, as much as it's nice to be in that exclusive crow's nest, sure, sure. Think about all the nights that you and I and other friends have spent. Yeah, where we go over to Gibson Girl. Yeah, yes, yes. We get our ice cream, and we go across to the old Wizard of Bras. Yes, and we sit on that porch, and we just hang out. Yeah, there's no way. You and I were supposed to be friends. Right, 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 right. I'm a redneck from Kentucky. Right. You're you from Sacramento. That's right. Like, Disney is this weird thing that brought us together. Mm -hmm. And my love of Disney has brought other people in my life. So it's me, you, and an Australian last Friday. Right, right, right. Right? Like a f***. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) Family. Keep it family. Sorry. Just lost my excitement. A guy from Australia who knows how much I love Disneyland who said, well, you... Take me on a tour. Mm-hmm. And so we're just sitting there. And it's a lot cheaper than Club 33 to sit on that porch. So slightly, yeah. But we've created this whole thing where we stay till 1 o'clock. Yeah, yes. We watch it empty. We watch yeah. it empty, but there's a culture to the end of the night. Mm-hmm. And there is a way where I feel like all these people are leaving. I'm like, you're missing the best part. Yep. I mean, it's not Space Mountain. It is what's going to happen. And those end moments where you're fighting tired, you're fighting adulthood. But there's an energy there. Yeah. There's the energy of that little city, that little promise. And after watching the uh, Imagineering series, it is really reinforced to me when I look at how they built it. Yeah. What I love about it. And whether it's Club 33 or that porch or all the little quiet spots that we love to go to on our laps. Mm -hmm. Or even now how some nights you and I have just hung out in Batu. Right. Right. Inside of our childhood fantasy of Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. I have come to realize that what I love most about it is that roadmap, that city design, and that truly, it's not just a tagline. Disneyland is 100% a place where dreams do come true. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. Absolutely. I, I think it's... it's. Thank you for listening to Disneyland for Designers, Episode 10, coming up in Part 2 for Circle of Trust members only. Yeah.
you know, when it's always been around, it would be easy to take it for granted and not understand the optimism that that place represents for today. Mm-hmm. There was an eight-year-old kid that walked through the gate. It's right. the only time they're ever going to be there in their childhood. Yeah. You can't forget that kid. Yeah. yeah you can't. Yeah. And when you go there, that's why you got to be on good behavior because you can't ruin it for that family. That's right. You know? That's exactly right. You yeah. can't act above the law. You can't, you know, recite all the lines and act it out. And, yeah. you know, like there's somebody in that boat. There's somebody in that doom buggy that hasn't seen that before. And you can't ruin it. for Yeah. Them. This ain't six flags. No. Go, <laughs> go there if you want to. Imagine if we woke up tomorrow and you got a text alert or a Twitter alert. Mm-hmm. You saw on Instagram, Disneyland's closed today. Yeah. It, it, would, it would just feel wrong. It would. You'd want to go though, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> but- I think to me the most um, interesting part of the history of Disneyland are all the things that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Even watching this, I'm thinking like we're losing a lot of these people. Th- these are going to become very quickly, if not already, secondhand stories. It's like I can't even imagine the old me that didn't have Disneyland in my life. <laughs> like I can't even imagine it. <laughs> Hello, citizens of Disneyland. Thank you so much for listening to part one of today's episode. Coming up in this extended part two, for Circle of Trust members, we have 66 more minutes of Disneyland for designers coming your way. Our conclusion to the Disney Imagineering story, our review of the first ever Life Day celebration at Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, and we take a trip to the park to broadcast live from the Small World Mall. To hear all of this, you need to become a member of the Circle of Trust at AID.network, where you unlock the full version of all 10 episodes of Disneyland for Designers, as well as the other episodes that Jared and I have done, and thousand, a thousand other episodes featuring dreamers and believers just like you. Let's get started with part two at AID.network. It's not just a tagline. Disneyland is 100% a place where dreams do come true. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. Absolutely. I, I think it's it's our proximity to the park. Uh, we're pass holders. We're able to afford to be pass holders. Like it, it, they, these are all sort of bonus things that allow us this view of it right. to not be panicked that we have to get all this stuff done while we're here, that we can there's come a, in for a There's a hours. leisurely stroll. We yeah, no, take. I mean, I think I came over at about nine o'clock that night, right? <laughs> <laughs> just to, just to close down the park and, and to record some stuff. And uh, yeah, I think um, it is a rare opportunity. And that's not even a Club 33 thing. That is literally just uh, affording a pass and being able to sort of leisurely take in, really absorb Disneyland in a way that I think few people get to. But like, again, I, I think it's easy to be distracted. But if you can, if you can spend one night, right, if you have that three day park hop or something, if you could just spend one of those nights just sort of leisurely doing it, not worrying about fast passes and rides. But sitting on that porch, spilling peppermint ice cream sundae all over that porch. Dude, you destroyed that. Deck. I tried. <laughs> you destroyed it. Uh, like that is that is some of the best times I think you can have at the park. I would always encourage anybody, show up at whatever time. Mm-hmm. Get to the park at whatever time you think that will allow you to stay yeah. till one thirty. Right, right. So maybe that's one thirty in the afternoon because you feel like you got a good 12 hours in mm-hmm. you. Maybe that's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. But getting there early is a fool's game. Yeah. Because as the day goes on, it gets busier and busier. You get tired and tired. Mm -hmm. And the temptation to quit gets greater and greater. Right. But if you show up late, you're on a different energy level than everybody else. Mm -hmm. As all the the sad dads are struggling through with their children that look like they're passed out. (laughs) Yeah. 
you're invigorated. You right. have the energy to make the last. And by the way, after the the nighttime show, whether it's Fantasmic or the fireworks, there's always a big draw that's keeping everybody there. Yeah. yeah the yeah. moment that's done, every 10 minutes after that, the park is noticeably quieter. Mm-hmm. It's noticeably empty. And you can crush everything in Fantasyland from 11 to midnight. Yeah. Peter Pan is still busy, but... That's where you go at 11.58. Manageable compared to the rest of the day. I will only ever ride Peter Pan at 11.15 p.m. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because that's exactly. the best shot at the most manageable line. But I, I think that when you think about their idea of building this little city yeah, and the fact that a grown man riding a train in his backyard, mm-hmm. going out with his daughters and saying there's a, there's a space that's missing here. Right, right, And not right, just right. trying to make better rides, but making a better park. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like uh, he wanted it to be clean. He wanted it to be pristine. He, he wanted to offer something because they even say in the documentary, like a lot of people thought of amusement parks at that time as like dirty, trashy, carny. Yeah. Right. You right. Know, scandalous. Right. And, you know, circling back around to Disneyland's uh, affection for the military. Yeah. Walt hired a military man to sure. oversee the building of it. Yeah. Um, Makes sense. Joe Fowler, Fowler's Harbor. Yep. The Admiral. You know, he he got a military guy in there to get military results, Mm -hmm. which is such a different thing to think about the world. Because in 2019, you would say a bunch of artists and hippies trying to make a mouse come to life would be very different than a bunch of ex-military people that built boats for the Navy. Right, Right. You know, like there was a weird, there was a weird harmony between left brain and right brain that got Disneyland built. Mm-hmm, and, for I, sure. and I think that it's that Walt was one of those people that could kind of see the finished product and see your potential to build that finished product. Right. Right. You know, I, it's so hard to wrap your head around, like what must've been going on in his head? How much of this was confusing to the people around him? Like, what are you doing? Like, I don't understand why we're doing this. And for him to come in late in the game and say, there's nothing here. There was that great line in there that that someone's quoting him saying like halfway through production of of this park, him saying, there's nothing here. That's exciting. There's nothing here yet. That's different than what these people can get at these other, Mm. uh, these carnival things to, to think that way at that point of, uh, at that stage of, of Disneyland is just, I think it speaks a lot to sort of who he was. The story of Disneyland has become legend. We've seen five-minute versions of the story. We've seen hour-long versions of the story done by other people. How did you feel like when you watch these things now? You know the story. Yeah. Back and forth. So 100%. Well. I, could t- I could do this documentary. Yeah. And, and I'm basically watching these things at this point because it's a Disney-produced thing. I, I, I'm watching this thing kind of just to catch footage that we didn't see, you know, clips from some of these Imagineers that we haven't seen before or maybe what. They always fall back on that black and white interview he did where he's talking about why he did Disneyland and stuff like that. How did you feel then, if we can talk specifically about the documentary for a bit here, how do you think it did in telling that story again? Was it, did it, did it fall back too much on sort of the legendary aspects of it, reinforcing that? Or, Or, you know, should it have gone further? Or do you think it's sort of this nice time capsule of like collecting a lot of clips? Well, it was interesting because I have most of that footage on my hard drive. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That I have 
painstakingly dug out and it's, you know, they own the archives. Yeah. So it was nice to see a lot of that footage remastered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cleaned Very up, clean. remastered. Uh, it was nice to hear a lot of those interviews, mm-hmm. you know, that were, they were cleaned up. So it was nice to, to have all of that in one bucket and cleaned up. Yes. I was skeptical pushing play and I almost didn't want to because I'm like, I know this story. Yeah. I'm somebody who's sort of hired myself to tell this story. Right. For, you know, I have a very specific way I tell the Disneyland yes, story. For sure. Um, and it's uh, kind of like a, you'll never believe this thing happened. And is there anything that we can learn from it? Look how different the world was then than it is now, but hope is still alive type story. So it's a little bit skeptical, but I have to say that 25 minutes in, 30 minutes in, I, I, I gave up. Yeah. I gave up being resistant. Right. Resentful and resisting it, and I I let go and got into the process. And I think the big thing that changed it for me is that, you know, you can kind of watch it and get in. It's like this fairy tale. Yeah. And it's this type of world that doesn't exist anymore, and and a human Mm -hmm. body shape that we don't see, and a fashion you don't see. It's (laughs) like a whole weird thing that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. But then you start to say, that's my main street. Mm hmm. I walk past that corner every time with a blindfold on. I could get to that exact yeah. intersection in Disneyland and guide you there with, you know, 50,000 people around me. So all of a sudden I started to realize, I'm like, there's an ownership in here, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they didn't bastardize that or step over it. And the reason why I started out complimenting and that they've never been able to tell their own story is because this time they've done it well. Yeah. Because they're not focusing on.